All right, so we're doing our Guide to the Psalm series. And last week we did chapter 7a and chapter 7b. I've been trying to stay away from all this a and b stuff, but uh, we're looking at different psalm genres. And I'm not going to, most of uh, a through f uh, is review of the six previous weeks, and then g uh, all the way through is review of last week. And I am going to review last week a little bit, but not the other stuff. I just want to remind us, when you're talking about genres of psalms, uh, there's no agreed upon or biblically true uh, set of categories. So I started with the Reformation Study Bible, six categories that they give, uh, but they don't make a separate category out of the penitential psalms or the imprecatory psalms. And those, in my opinion, are something that you should know something about. So I really just took the six categories that they have in, uh, in the Reformation Study Bible and added the two. I think the Reformation Study Bible, although they don't say this, would put the penitential psalms under their category that they call um, so laments. Uh, I think that most of the penitential psalms would come under laments, but I'm not sure of that. Um, and I'm, I'm not actually sure why they don't cover that con- those two concepts because those are pretty big concepts uh, in church history. So I'm a little surprised that the Reformation Study Bible uh, skips that altogether. Um, if you're uh, looking to read books on the Psalms, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the Psalms. But interestingly, uh, C.S. Lewis couldn't deal with the imprecatory psalms at all. So he actually, uh, you know, being that he doesn't have, say, a Reformation Protestant perspective on Scripture, uh, you know, he kind of uh, basically says that there's a lot of things in the imprecatory psalms that nobody really has a right to pray and doesn't, you know, he couldn't couldn't really work work through it uh, in his mind, so... And we'll talk about the fact that the imprecatory psalms is, is kind of a difficult thing to think about. So, um, so we talked about the wisdom psalms last week, so I'm just going to review a little bit. What I want to make sure you remember is that although the Reformation Study Bible lists that as the sixth category of psalms, I put it first because Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. In Psalm 1 and 2, it's almost universally agreed that those psalms were put first because they're like a key to how to interpret all the psalms. And so, um, uh, and a lot of people would, would actually these days differentiate between wisdom literature and poetical books. Uh, typically, the old-fashioned way of thinking about things is that the five wisdom books are also called the five poetical books. So that's Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, I skipped Proverbs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which is also called Song of Songs, and it's also called Canticles. So um, some people would say, uh, you know, defining wisdom more the way Proverbs does as a path or a way of life that starts with the fear of the Lord and instructs us in how to live in every practical way and so forth, since the Psalms really deal with loving God, worshiping God, talking to God, praying to God, uh, some people would say only some of the Psalms fit as wisdom literature. And uh, 
They, some people would say the Song of Solomon is more a poem, but not really wisdom literature. But I disagree because um, the Psalms, more than anything else, uh, tell us the wisdom of keeping God-centered. The Psalms are, are a good way to anchor your life and your heart, in, you know, because they're all about loving God, worshiping God, praying to God, looking to God in every situation. And so that in itself is the beginning of wisdom. So I would, I would uh, say I would just overlap, just call all five of those books both poetical books. And um, I hate having stuff in my pocket. Can you put that over by my Bible there? Um, it, I would call them both wisdom books and poetical books. So does that make sense? So um, then we looked at the, the fact that a lot of the Psalms are hymns of praise. And we looked at uh, that in some detail. If you notice in my outline, some of them are bold and underlined. And maybe today we might start on this, but we're going to, all the ones that are bold and underlined, we're going to examine those in some detail in weeks to come. So I'm, I think after today, I'm kind of done with the introduction to the Psalms. And so we're going to probably start with next week examining specific Psalms. And I haven't made a final decision and how many we're going to examine, but I'm going to try to make like 30 as the max number we're going to hit. Uh, hopefully we won't be hitting like 50 of the Psalms. Uh, the th flipping over, the third category is laments. Many people love the, the, the laments because uh, life is full of suffering. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, uh, Everything doesn't go well all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I think we, you know, Murphy's Law, isn't Murphy's Law something like if something can go wrong, it will go wrong or something like that. And, uh, you know, since Adam and Eve sinned, there's been strife in the earth. You know, when Cain murdered Abel, spoiler alert, it wasn't because of overpopulation. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> You know, some people have the theory that there's more murders in the city because of overpopulation and crowding, and there's a psychologicalness to that. And it's just that there's actually more people, so there's wherever there's more people, there's more murders. Because fallen man is a murderer from the beginning. Because fallen man came under the dominion of Satan, and Jesus calls Satan the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8. So the laments are kind of uh, good because they help us know how to pour out our heart to God uh, because real Christians get cancer and real Christians have somebody in their family die and real Christians got speed tickets from Officer Diaz and, uh, <laughs> and uh, real Christians have economic hardships and lose jobs and uh, real Christians uh, don't win the championship every time and, uh, and so forth. And life is accompanied by loss and by grief at times. And, uh, the, you know, the laments uh, help us express our heart in seasons of sorrow and seasons of loss. And uh, one of the things that I hope you can start to appreciate as you grow, I think it's actually the most precious part of the Christian life, although it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it, is the suffering of the Christian life. Because it's in suffering that you actually really come to know the Lord uh, because he entered into, you know, tremendous suffering on our behalf. And it's, it's really in suffering that you begin to uh, 
develop more compassion for others. Uh, God, God uses suffering in a lot of great ways. And so, um, if you notice under the list of laments, it's um, in, all of, in all of these categories, I give some examples, but the list of laments is the only one that the examples couldn't fit on one line. Not that any of the list of examples are exhaustive or complete. Uh, Thanksgiving Psalms, we covered that, and then, and then we covered Psalms of Trust. Uh, and Psalms of Trust come somewhere between a lament and a psalm of thanksgiving, because in a psalm of trust, the psalmist is still in a troubled place. Ever, ever been in a troubled place? Sometimes a troubled place lasts for a while. I've had some fairly difficult troubles in my life sometimes that maybe have lasted eight years or so. And uh, so in the, you know, in the psalm of trust, you're, you're uh, acknowledging to God, you're, you're telling him of your troubles and you're asking for him to be with you and so forth. But you're also acknowledging that you know that he works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And you know that these things are, uh, you know, sometimes even mistakes you make. Uh, I don't say make a, go make a mistake so you can learn, but sometimes mistakes you make uh, have a sanctifying effect in the end because you learn never to do that again. For instance, uh, many a Christian makes a big decision in their life without getting proper go- enough godly counsel and, and maybe five years down the road, they come to realize that was a wrong turn. I shouldn't have made that commitment. But, uh, you know, if, if in the end uh, you can learn how to walk more wisely, uh, that'll be, you know, it might be worth it in the end. So anyway, so today we're going to get into the last three categories, uh, royal psalms, the penitential psalms, and the imprecatory psalms. And everyone's heard of imprecatory psalms, right? You've heard of that, right? I hope. Um, So uh, let's get into this. Um, So the royal psalms are sometimes called the kingship psalms, and they're uh, sometimes called messianic psalms because Jesus is the ultimate Messiah king. The greatest and first of the, mess- of the kingship psalms is Psalm 2. And d- never forget that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are given as kind of a key to how to read all of the psalms. So you should thoroughly know Psalms 1 and Psalm 2, and you should be thinking about them when you're reading any psalm. And Psalm 2 deals with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's anointed. It is not quoted quite as much as Psalm 110 about the Lord, uh, but it's uh, probably in second place in terms of how much it's quoted about our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In Psalm 2, uh, brings out that the, that the heaven or the peoples of this earth rage against the Lord, and it says the Lord laughs. And it's, uh, you really kind of have to picture it to get to the heart of it. It's kind of like... Um, you know, when a little kid's trying to, you know, when you're wrestling with a five-year-old and you're, maybe you're holding him by, you got your hand on his forehead and he's swinging at you and he can't get, get you or whatever. And, 
And it's all like when you're, I love to wrestle with my boys when they were young. And it's all fun and games unless uh, someone crosses the line and then gets, you know, uh, I had one son who's not here, would say that sometimes forgot that we're just playing. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, eventually you have to sort of step in as the dad and say, hold it. You're not really trying to kill me. <laughs> you know, uh, even though in your heart you're pretty upset right now because you're frustrated because I'm so much bigger. But, um, you know, um, you know, Psalm 2 is kind of a picture of the Lord puts up with the, the rebellion and the just what sinful, knuckle, wicked people the whole earth is. And it's even, you know, he's a little bit patient with it. But there comes a time when it's like, stop. You know, I'm, I'm the Lord and you're not. <laughs> you know? Um, so... Um, the kingship psalms uh, tend to stress that God is king of the universe. They stress that God is king of creation. So there's, uh, you know, if you remember, we have a concept here in Grace Christian Fellowship called the Book of the Year. And last year, because we used a book of the year that was a little bit difficult reading level for some people, that was Carl Truman's book called The Credo Imperative, we decided to have a second book of the year that would be a little easier reading. And it's a book they actually use in the Bible survey class at Dominion Academy. And I originally got the book from uh, Father Wayne McNamara when I was substitute teaching for him. But I loved the book because it was called uh, The Heart of the Old Testament. And the book had 10 chapters that were about nine major themes of the Old Testament. It just so happened that he thought the theme of covenant was such an important theme that he wrote two chapters about covenant. So that's why he had nine themes and ten chapters, because two chapters, he, I, felt he, I guess he felt like he couldn't cover everything about covenant in one chapter. But creation is one of the major themes. You know, Job talks about creation. The Psalms talk about creation. The prophets talk about creation. Uh, if you understand... Uh, spiritual things at all, you understand there's a reason why fallen man has always attacked the idea of creation. Um, a lot of people have been taught by public schools, and so they have been brainwashing a lot of really stupid things. And so one of the ideas that a lot of modern people actually think is that Charles Darwin uh, came up with the idea of, of evolution. Has anybody ever heard that before? And uh, in a book called Origin of the Species. Uh, evolution was the ancient ideas of all the Greek philosophers. Uh, it was the ancient ideas of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, the Mesopotamians. They were all evolutionists. What Darwin did was because with the rise of Christianity, it made evolution look like such an absurdity that Darwin was trying to t take an idea that had been crushed into oblivion, and he was trying to fight back and give it some pseudoscientific possible explanation for why it was actually true. 
because it's obviously a very ridiculous idea. It assumes a concept called spontaneous generation to start with, that life came out of non-life at some point. That's totally absurd. That takes an irrational leap of faith that's beyond any irrational leap of faith anywhere else in the universe. And um, uh, a total impossibility. But fallen men want to believe it bad enough. Lucifer himself was the first evolutionist. He had to reason maybe God wasn't, it isn't eternal. Maybe he just evolved before me. And so maybe he isn't all these omnis, like omniscient, omnipresent, you know, and so forth. He, maybe he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise. Uh, you know, to enter into rebellion against God is the height of foolishness. There's no more foolish thing you could ever do. And yet, uh, you, and you have, to, you have to embrace some kind of evolutionary paradigm against the, against the Lord to, to rebel. And so all sinful thought systems have some kind of evolutionary thinking. And they always have from ancient times. And all Darwin was doing, in light of the fact that the Christian worldview had, had shown, had smashed the idea of evolution out of the ancient world, he was trying to find a way to reassert it. And of course, fallen men want that so bad that people lined up in the, by the hundreds and camped out for three or four days to try to get a copy of the first publication of Darwin's book, and it sold out within hours. It was more people lined up and camping out and so forth than you would get for like a rock concert. Because fallen men want very desperately to have some kind of pseudo reason why evolution could possibly be plausible. They're highly motivated to believe that nonsense. So the, the royal psalms... Uh, one of their emphasis is that God is king of creation, as is one of the emphasis of the whole Old Testament. I didn't mean to get off on that concept. Um, that wasn't in my plans, but it's, I hope you see that. I, uh, that's, if you haven't read a lot of books on creationism and stuff, you should read a few. Um, usually the, the reform guys, the Henry Morris camp, what's called the Institute of Creation Research, they're they're a lot better usually than the Armenian kind of guys, uh, like the Ken Hams and so forth. Although I've talked to Ken Ham before. I like him. He's a really nice guy, and uh, he was very helpful to me when I was doing a research project once. And You know, fine Christian man, and I've been to his, uh, some of his places and listened to his lectures and stuff. But um, anyway, that God is king of creation. I lost my place in my notes. Where are we? Uh, Redemption, you know, there's no redemption apart from God. Now, why is that important? Because with the fall of man, if you remember, Adam and Eve took fig leaves and they sewed them together to try to hide their nakedness before the Lord. And that's all biblical imagery, symbolism, 
Uh, we spent a long time with uh, Joanna and, and Emmanuel trying to explain biblical imagery and symbolism, um, word pictures. All of those mean the same thing. But the Bible communicates in weird pictures. So nakedness is a universal symbol of shame in all ancient literature. We, uh, you know, if you have seen what's called a crucifix, uh, they, of course, always have Jesus with a loincloth because they're, they have some, um, what's propriety, what's the word, a modesty. But Jesus was naked on the cross. And it's because he took our shame upon himself. And shame, when Adam and Eve sinned, they then knew they were naked. That is, they knew they were ashamed apart from God. And so they be, the first thing they did is they tried to do something about it themselves. And the essence of philosophy and religion since then is man's attempt to redeem himself. Every worldview and religion apart from Christ boils down to man's attempt to redeem himself. And as the Psalms say, no man can redeem his brother. For the price of his soul is uh, too costly. So uh, God being the, the righteous judge is a uh, theme of, of course, the whole Old Testament, but especially in the Psalms. I don't know about you, but if you study world history enough, You'll, you'll start to really love the fact that God is ultimately a king of righteous judgment. You know, every would-be Hitler and so forth is, is going to get theirs. And, uh, and I find that quite comforting uh, because the, the most noticeable thing of all history, the, the most common theme of all literature is man's terrible in, inhumanity to his fellow man. If there's any one theme uh, uh, from a natural-minded point of view is that people are very mean and they're murderers in their heart and they have been since the fall of man. Cain killed his own brother out of jealousy. So uh, God is the king over all idols. When, he said, when the revelation says he's the king of kings, it actually means he's the king of all those who would be king in it. He's the lord of all those would be lords. Because every fallen man, including ourselves, has wanted to be a king in our heart. And we've wanted to be a lord apart from God. And salvation is to be delivered from your own lordship. Did you hear that? Salvation is to be delivered from your own lordship. So that you won't make the decisions yourself anymore. Or call the shots. Because doing what you want to do, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, where you want to do it, and why you want to do it is the ultimate slavery of the universe. And we're, we live in a culture that worships at the altar of what they think is freedom because they can, we want to do however we want to do with our pornography, with our gambling, with our drugs, with everything. But they don't see the ironic 
deception in that, that they are increasingly slaves of their own fears. You know, when Christ comes to set you free, he wants to set you free from being shy. He wants to set you free from every sort of thing. He wants to make you the person you were created to be. So, he's the king of all would-be idols. I love, um, you know, in the, uh, the time of uh, Saul, I guess it would be, when, uh, is that right? Or the time, no, before Saul, in the time when Samuel was first starting to prophesy, and the Israelites, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the Philistines defeated Israel in battle, and then they had uh, the ark, and they put it in the, in the Philistine temple in front of their god Dagon. And they came in every morning and found Dagon had fallen down and worshipped <laughs> to, to Yahweh. And his hands broke off, and eventually his neck broke off. And, and eventually the Philistines said, let's get this thing out of here. <laughs> you know, uh, they, let's send it back. Um, he's the god of all history. If I, I love to hear, I'm, that's ironic, annoying. I hate to hear people say, all the time you hear people say, I hate history. Well, you probably had some bad history teachers. History is what the Bible's all about. The first 17 books of the Old Testament are historical books. The first five books of the New Testament are historical books. And guess what? There's a very, very important reason why the scribes and then the apostles and the early church and so forth put the history books first. Because our faith is the only one in the whole world that's based on reality and based on history. And the historical facts are the essence of what we're about. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of John's sermon today because Jesus historically gave that to us in the church at a real point in time. So anyway, the Royal Psalms... um, Now, the next most important thing about the Royal Psalms... Oh, by the way, uh, the Reformation Study Bible separates the Royal Psalms into two categories, the, the ones that are about God the King and the ones that are about human kings. And I think that sort of misses the point myself. Who am I to argue with uh, all those Reformed scholars? But uh, why, what the heck? <laughs> uh, I, I think that the kingship psalms are all about the kingship of, of Christ, whether they're pointing to David as a type, prototype of King Jesus or Solomon as a prototype of King Jesus, the, all the kingly psalms are about the fact that our God is king. If you're a fan of N.T. Wright at all, one of the best books I ever read by N.T. Wright was uh, a study of the Gospels that was called How Jesus Became King. And uh, it was a study of the four Gospels. And um, so... You know, again, he's the king of all the would-be kings. Um, does everybody's uh, copy have, like, light print under 0. 0.7? 
Hmm. I wonder what happened there. Um, hope it's so. Anyway, um, the reason the uh, the kingship psalms prophetically foreshadow Christ, and there's um, they're so important that I have uh, five of them bold and underlying. So there's at least five of the kingship psalms that we're going to go through uh, a little bit in weeks to come. Next is the category of the seven penitential psalms. Now, a lot of Christians use the seven penitential psalms during Lent because historically the idea of, of Lent includes that it, it's a time for us uh, for self-examination. It's a time for hum- humbling ourselves. It's a time for confessing our sins. It's a time for appealing to God for sanctification. Um, it's, it's a time for preparing for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in our identification with him in that. Um, so uh, let me tell you a little bit about self-examination. The scriptures, James tells us that the scriptures are like a mirror And so the one who doesn't do what the scripture says is like the person who looks in the mirror and immediately forgets. You know, I look in the mirror in the morning because some things are wrong. I got bad breath, greasy skin, what have you. I might need a shave uh, like I did this morning. All right, uh, three o'clock this morning I shaved. (laughs) So uh, what, you know, I'm a little nutty. But, uh, you know, you look in the mirror to see what's wrong. Now, when you're a teenager, you might look in the mirror to, like, admire yourself or something, but hopefully you're past that stage of life, and you look in the mirror to say, man, I need to brush my teeth, and I need to shave. I need to go cut my hair, whatever you, you know, need to do. With Women have a different list, but uh, we won't go there. I, I, that's too mysterious beyond my pay grade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Uh, you know, uh, there's a place for self-examination, and they, it starts with the scriptures. It should include godly counsel. One of the things that you should always do is understand that God uses people to show you yourself. And you need to kind of know how to, to navigate that, because sometimes that's a bad idea to listen to what people think about you. So part of how you navigate it is you, is you think of how mature is this person in Christ? And sometimes God even, if you remember, uh, several people in the Bible got rebuked by unbelievers. And of course, the prophet Balaam got rebuked by a jackass. <laughs> and I've been rebuked by a lot of jackasses. But... Uh, but uh, um, you know, so you, you have to kind of consider the source, but sometimes even an ungodly source has some truth in it. So, um, my biggest thing that I want to impart to anybody about self-examination is self-examination too often or all day long is itself a foolish thing. You know, when Paul says, I do not even examine myself, 
he, he's not saying he never reads the scriptures and, and repents about an attitude or a motivation or whatever. But you don't want to be contemplative in the sense of looking inside all the time. Uh, I'll tell you that if you, people who struggle with discouragement, people who struggle with depression, uh, so forth, are, that starts with looking inside too much. Because, you know, there's a pretty black hole in there. And so you want to kind of be guided by the Spirit of God as to how and when to examine yourself and then move on and get focused on God in, in loving and serving others. You don't have time to, to be thinking about your contemplating your inner attitudes and motivation when there's diapers to change and you know, jobs to be done and machinery to be run or, and whatever. Does that make sense? So make sure you understand that. But the Psalms are, uh, the penitential Psalms are good for that stuff. Now, I, uh, the Psalms, penitential Psalms are usually listed as seven. Um, I, un, I bolded Psalm 32 and 51. I would guess if I were to ask what your favorite Psalm is, there would be some people who would come up with Psalm 32 or 51. Uh, or if you had a short list of your favorite Psalms, they probably include Psalm 32 and 51. Mine always have. So the, the first guy who called them the, the, the penitential Psalms, or when they became commonly known as that, was in a book called Cassiodorus's Commentary, written in the 6th century. Um... You often don't hear about penitential psalms in a lot of forms of evangelicalism today, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the more the church has divided, the first great division of the church happened in what was called the Great Sixth Schism in 1054 between the East and the West. The second great division started with the Protestant Reformation. Some people think there's over 80,000 types of Christianity in the world today. And so every church like us has one, one uh, pressure that we need, you know, we need to grow and we need members, and we're competing in the marketplace of ideas. And we don't have a denomination or anything else. The only way anyone ever comes here is if we can get their attention long enough to actually look at who we are. If they really look at who we are well, they always stay because what we're doing is really wise, good, full of knowledge, balanced and, and it's come out of a lot of effort to, to get it right. Um, so, but with that, um, there's tremendous pressure out there to have types of Christianity that are popular. And so things like the prosperity gospel, they're popular. I mean, wouldn't you like if I, instead of challenging you to read more, repent, or confess your sins, if I said, you're about to have a breakthrough, and God's going to make you rich, and God's going to bless you, and boys, things are good, you know, and uh, you're the greatest. <laughs> you know, so um, in our, a lot of forms of modern Christianity, there's not a whole lot of uh, emphasis on the penitential psalms, because the penitential psalms start with a little bit of pain. You start with acknowledging you're a sinner, and you need God the Holy One to examine your motivations, your attitudes, your behavior, and you need God's grace to change your direction. 
And that's not real popular in modern times. That won't sell a lot of books. No one's going to listen to those kind of podcasts. And uh, it's never going to be popular. And I have known very few churches that have much size that haven't attained that by great reductions in the message of Christianity, especially the difficult parts. So, um, the penitential psalms start by acknowledging our sin, and they acknowledge the source of our corruption. That is, we are, are you know what? Can I say something even more popular than you're a sinner? You know what? You're dying. You have a terminal disease. And there's no doctor who's going to stop it. Now, isn't that exciting? (laughs) You're dying. You are subject to the law of sin and death, and and even though you're delivered in Christ, you will still sow this body as a seed in the ground and and so that it can be resurrected with a body like unto Christ's resurrected body. So uh, the penitential psalms help us see that a lot of our, the things we go through that include things like misery, trouble, pain in our relationships, things like that, they have a f- sin factors in them. So I've got seven things listed here that the penitential psalms do. They recognize the radical, that is, radical means root. In other words, your problem's right down the root <laughs> of who you are. You have an internal nature of sin. They acknowledge the burden and the sorrow of sin. You know, it, Christ, you know modern Christianity ha- tries to have a message of happy, 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 happy all the time. It's like that little penguin. What was that penguin movie? Like there was a happy feed or something like that. Every, I mean, that's okay if you're reading books to Susan. Uh, but, but life isn't happy, 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 happy all the time. There's real, there's real hurt and suffering and need out there. And no one else is coming to alleviate it but us. Uh, the, the penitential psalms uh, start with confessing our sin nature and our sinful deeds and acts. They, they address both our heart and our, our inward life, you might say, and our outer deeds. Uh, they contain prayers for part for God's pardoning grace or part uh, His mercy, but with an appeal for repentance that is to bring forth fruit of change. You know, it's no good to just confess our sins. We need to cry out to God to deliver us from our sins, to 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 cause us to be reborn. We don't just need remodeled. We need a tornado to knock the whole thing down and rebuild from, the, from Christ's foundation up. We don't just need a little counseling. We need a whole new person. Uh, they, the penitential psalms acknowledge that repentance brings forth fruit. It cha- uh, 
that we need changes in both attitude and action. And I put some scriptures on with some of these points so you could look them up and you know, just acknowledge that that scripture makes that point. Uh, the penitential psalms acknowledge that true repentance always includes receiving instruction and wise behavior. You know, a lot of you have heard me say over and over again why I read the Proverbs a lot uh, for year, many years, but it's as simple as this. When it said the wise man is this and the fool is this, I was the fool almost all the time when I started. I'm hoping I'm batting a little better now, but uh, the Lord will be the judge of that. Uh, and true repentance yields joy. We need, we need something beyond forgetting our sins or escaping from them. Drug addicts do that. Alcoholics do that. You can get, keep real busy to, to avoid dealing with the realities of, your, of the fact that we have, we don't just have shame and false guilt, we have real guilt from really having offended a holy God. And so we need something beyond forgetting about it. We need forgiveness. We need uh, expiation. We need, uh, we need uh, propitiation. We need cleansed. We need washed. So uh, I may actually do another week on this so I can do the imprecatory psalms. In case I don't, uh, yeah, they're too controversial not to give some time to. So uh, some churches are, pray the imprecatory psalms. Some Christ, a lot of modern Christians are very negative on the imprecatory psalms because the imprecatory psalms uh, ask God to deal with and to judge his enemies. And so... Uh, I did list uh, there, it looks like I cut it down to four because I actually was trying to fit it on the page. I originally had about eight good articles about the imprecatory psalms. Um, you know, people like John Piper, the Gospel Coalition, there's some people who are more trustworthy than others. You have to watch out when you just Google stuff who you're reading. Uh, make sure you read, you know, you get some recommendations on who's a trustworthy Christian voice out there. Uh, my, I put Peter Lightheart first because my wife loves Peter Lightheart. She, I think she likes him more than me, but uh, <laughs> uh, at least it's theology. But, uh, uh, you know, if it's a Peter Lightheart book, Catherine loves it. So, um, you know, uh, you probably want to read some things about the imprecatory psalms is, I guess, what I'm saying. You can Google it, but don't just read any nonsense out there. A lot of people get into a lot of spiritual confusion because they use some guidance and from wiser Christians and who's good to read is what I'm saying. And, there, and there's a lot of guys in our church that are more than capable of helping you know who's good to read. Um, we, we actually have a, um, a sheet that you can get from Stephen on uh, a lot of uh, Christian ministries out there that are good to read. And uh, Generally, certain, certain names are almost always trustworthy. So uh, that's it for today, and we will probably look at imprecatory psalms in more detail. And then we really will. Uh, next week, we have Stephen Shepherd from Church Planning International speaking at both meetings. But so two weeks from now, I'll, get, I'll do imprecatory psalms, and then we'll actually start going through selected psalms and examining them using the things we learned in the first uh, seven chapters.